You're listening to KNBR, the only place with Golden State Warriors basketball. Now back to Mr. T. Eric Burns, Tom Tolber back with you, and it is indeed my pleasure to introduce the uh, coach with the most career victories in the National Basketball Association with 1,335, won five rings with the Boston Celtics, and most importantly, coached me for three fun-filled years over there in Oakland where... I had thought that at some point during my tenure there at Golden State, I was going to have to actually change my name to Goddammit Tolbert. <laughs> That's about all he called me. That's why I had to be creative as a coach. <laughs> I had to coach you. <laughs> He's heading into the Hall of Fame September 7th, Coach Don Nelson. Coach, how you doing? I'm just doing great. I couldn't be better. Things couldn't be better. I'm enjoying my retirement on Maui and uh, just having a ball. Coach Tommy is seems like every day he comes in with a new Nelly story for me. He seemed like kind of a renegade in his younger years. What was it like actually coaching Tom Tolbert? <laughs> well, actually, he was a better player than people think. Uh, he wasn't bad. He was just small. And to be really effective, I thought he needed to play center. So I, that's where I played him. And, of course, we didn't have uh, – our centers weren't very good anyway. So – he really filled a nice niche uh, for our ball club. And then uh, I took the next step. I made him point center where he could actually run the team as a center and, you know, start the offense. That way we got the ball out of his hands. And we <laughs> didn't have to worry about him getting it back once he made a pass. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, you know, he just had great desire. And uh, one thing he always did for me was rebound and give me everything he had. Uh, now off the court was a little bit different. I was never any trouble. <laughs> not, I was never any trouble. Not trouble. I know. We never, we never saw you. That you just was never knew where I was. <laughs> <laughs> was it fun for you to? And one thing I always tell people, Coach, when they ask me about you, I said, in all my years playing for Nell, and it was three. It it, it felt like it was longer because it was so much fun being there with Chris and Timmy and Mitch and Rod and Jim and all the guys. Was that you always made the opposing coach adjust to what we were doing, not the other way around? Was that part of the fun for you in being a coach, finding different things that other coaches maybe hadn't thought of or different schemes that they haven't tried and, and make that work? Well, actually, I wasn't kidding when I started the program. Uh, you know, we just didn't have a lot of good big players, and uh, so you had to be creative, find uh, different ways to stay competitive and, and win ball games. And, uh, you know, when you have a talented small team like we did, and, you know, including yourself, 6'8 center, uh, you know, you couldn't play slow down. You had to play that way. Uh, if I would have had a talented big team, yeah. I would have played differently, no question. But I think good coaches uh, evaluate their ball club and then find a way for them to be the most competitive team they can be. That's really what I yeah. what I did. Well, you look at Milwaukee. I mean, you had a very balanced team at what you would consider a legitimate center and on Lister. Legitimate small forward, Marcus Johnson. Then you had Junior Bridgman and, right. and Winters back there. I mean, they, you had guys that would fit the prototypical power forward, small forward, center position. So it wasn't like your whole career you thought, well, let's just go crazy and play small ball and have fun with it. Exactly. It was what and you had and what I could do the best <clears throat> with. And we and we led the team. Those teams led the team in defense or the yeah. league in defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the best defensive team in the league or second a couple of years. 
Uh, so we were real good. And then Bob Lanier joined us, and mm-hmm. he really gave us a nice presence at center, and he could only play about half a game. But uh, as long as he was uh, available for the fourth quarter and we could stay competitive until then, why, he'd normally get us a win. What type of team was more fun to coach, more of the standard, you get your center and your guards and power forward and everything, or the running gun style that you became known for? Well, it really didn't matter uh, to me, actually. Uh, I enjoyed coaching both kinds of teams. I think uh, things that I enjoyed the most was to coach good guys that played hard and really gave you an effort. You you know, you didn't have to worry about uh, getting on them too much at halftime. That They gave you what they had. Uh, and then, uh, you know, talented players are always a lot of fun to be around and, and to coach because they're going to get you a lot of wins along the way. And when you have a chance to have both of those things, you know, there's three things. The other size, we didn't have much size, but we had those other ingredients. Almost uh, every team that I coached, or I made sure we got rid of the guys that didn't fit in or weren't those kind of guys and uh, always had good guys and played hard. Can you believe it now? I mean, you 50 years in the NBA. Yeah, you know, fifty years in the NBA, starting off with the the Boston Celtics. I mean, just take me through what was going through your mind when you're you're drafted and you're playing for the Celtics. I mean, this legendary organization with Red Auerbach as a coach and and Russell and Kuzi and I mean, just the tradition they had there. I mean, just what were your thoughts your first year there in Boston? Well, I was just lucky to make the team. I came in early uh, that year. I was actually playing for the Lakers. I started the year mm-hmm. out there, and then I got waived. Uh, right before the season started and uh, went home, didn't have a job, really. And I was lucky that uh, Tommy Heinsohn retired that year with the Boston Celtics, and they had uh, drafted a guy named Ron Watts that wasn't ready to be an NBA power forward. So they were looking around for a guy, and, uh, you know, I was one of, like, three guys that they looked at. And Jackie Moreland uh, was another pretty good forward in the league, played for the Detroit Pistons. I know they were looking at Jackie, at me, and I think one other guy, and... uh, basically chose me because uh, I had been to the finals that year with Mm -hmm. the Lakers Celtics and uh, we had a whole bunch of injuries and so I got to play a lot and I played out of position I ended up being a point guard if you can believe it because all our guards (laughs) got hurt so it was me trying to get the ball to Jerry West and uh, but anyway he got a chance to see me play different positions and I think uh, when time came to choose uh, that was probably the reason that they chose me. What was Jerry West like as a player? Oh, he was unbelievable. In that particular uh, series of playoff games, he led uh, all-time scorer uh, in the playoffs that year, averaged 45 points a game. (laughs) Because right before the playoffs, uh, you know, we had a decent team with the Lakers. Uh, Elgin Baylor goes down, uh, tore his kneecap, and was out for the entire playoffs. Uh, And then our other good player, Jim Barnett, or Jim Barnett, Dick Barnett, uh, got hurt, and uh, as a result, West carried us to the finals that year, averaging 45 points a game, and it was one of the most unbelievable experiences uh, I'd ever been through because I was actually playing a lot those yeah. games, and, and he just carried our ball club all the way to the finals. Who in the hell did you guard as a point guard? Oh, I guarded, you know, whoever was the other guy. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't very good, but, <laughs> and you know, I only had to do that in the Boston series yeah. because uh, we, we had two more injuries going into that series. So there I was, <laughs> the last guy standing. <laughs> I was pretty ugly. I think we won one game. We got beaten five. <laughs> Casey Jones was guarding me. Guess what? How am I going to get the ball up? <laughs> 
at what point did you know that you wanted to coach in the NBA? I just wanted a job. I mean, you know, uh, Tommy can, can attest to this. You, you play till you're as old as you can be as a, as a ball player, and uh, I was 36. I played 14 years. And uh, so then where do you go from there? You know, you don't have any experience doing anything else. Uh, so I was looking for a job. I had uh, four young kids that I <clears throat> I had to raise, and uh, I was looking around for something to do. I never dreamed that I could even be a coach. I didn't. My mind didn't go there. Actually, I tried to be a referee, and I thought I'd be a pretty good one. I went to the L.A. Summer League and tried out and uh, refereed a bunch of games there, and hoping I could be a NBA referee. And then I got a call from uh, the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks who was looking for a guy who would relate to players. And I had uh, shoulder-length hair at the time. I looked like Tolbert. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of, that's why I liked you so much. You reminded me of me. <laughs> and uh, he was looking for a guy, you know, could it, who could adapt. Uh, uh, Larry Costello was one of my dear friends and uh, died a few years ago. But, uh, you know, he uh, had the crew cut, and he was, uh, you know, one of those tough old mm-hmm. coaches. So I got a job because uh, Wayne was a teammate of mine with the Boston Celtics and, you know, knew that I, I I always played the game intelligently and thought I'd be a good fit for Larry. So I got a chance to coach. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking to Don Nelson, who's going to be heading into the Basketball Hall of Fame next Friday, September 7th. Talk about your evolution as a coach because I remember talking to Alton Lister and you were fairly rough on some of us when I played, and certainly the rookies. The you didn't hold back on some of the rookies. Alton Lister looked at me and said, "You have no idea." He goes, it was "Much worse when I was in Milwaukee." Right. What was the evolution of being tough on players, and as your career goes on as a coach, maybe changing your approach to make sure you're getting through to the players? And what are some of the things maybe that you stuck by that you believe were your bedrock principles? as a coach that you didn't abandon all the way through? Well, I always believed that you could be as hard on the players as you needed to be as long as they knew that you loved them and that you cared for them. Uh, they would accept that. Uh, if they didn't think you liked them and tried it, I don't think it was going to work. So they always knew that. I always made sure they knew that off the court and in practice and so on. Uh, but actually, through my career early, I was a lot tougher than I was uh, later in my career. Yeah. And I changed, actually, here. Uh, when I was so hard on Sharunas Marchalonis, because one thing that really bothered me as yeah. a coach was not just a mistake, but the re- repeat mistake. And, uh, you know, Sharunas would make the same yeah. mistake over and over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, you kept correcting him, and, and he just couldn't remember. And he was so used to playing uh, international ball, that, and he was so dominant, he could just do whatever he wanted. So it was hard for him uh, to make that adjustment, and uh, and I just was really tough on him during games. So I was, uh, you know, watching. And one time I was so hard on him, he actually came back in a huddle in tears. And I yeah. started looking at myself and said, you know, wow, what what are you doing? Uh, and so I watched some film of myself coaching, and I said, who is that maniac on the sideline? It was me. So. Uh, I thought, you know, it's time for me to make some adjustments here. And uh, so I, I made a conscious effort to change. And I think it was for the better. I, I was softer and uh, I was still, you know, tough enough when I needed yeah. to be. But I didn't have to be tough all the time because players knew I was tough and, and I didn't have to ask more than once normally. 
Well, you know it was funny, Eric, was when we were <laughs> when Gatling was a rookie. <laughs> it was so funny because whenever Gatling forgot to play, he'd just go set a pick and roll. He just would forget the play and he'd go set a pick and roll for Timmy. And I remember Coach telling him that, you know what, if you don't know what you're doing, just fake it. Just act like you know what you're doing. So we'd be sitting on the bench and we'd call horns down or the horns up or whatever. And we'd look over at Chris and Chris would have that look in his eyes like, uh-oh, here comes a pick and roll. Sure enough, we'd be trying to run an ISO on the left side. Chris would come over and run the pick and roll. You could just see Coach over there going, "Oh my goodness gracious! How could you forget?" That? Although, although I got to tell you, my, my one of my favorite stories when you're on a play for Alton Lister, and Alton forgot the play, and he came back to the bench, and now he goes, "Big man, big man, how can you forget your own bleeping play? You only have one." <laughs> And you forgot it. <laughs> and you know what his response to me was? Why? I had it, Coach, but it went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, when you look back at all the different teams that you coach, is, is there one or two that stand out? Uh, there's one or two every, with every team that I coached mm-hmm. that uh, were special for sure. And, and almost everywhere I went other than uh, my uh, half a year with the New York Knicks, I just had uh, great experiences in all the, uh, all the spots. Milwaukee, you know, we were just, uh, just a terrific team there and won tons of games and just had a lot of fun, great guys there. And then I came here with the first time run TMC, uh, what fun we had and, you know, we were able to do some damage in the playoffs. We beat a couple of pretty good teams, San Antonio once and Utah, either once or twice. We, I think we beat them. And uh, in Dallas, why, we were pretty darn good there, too. So I think every spot. And when I came back here, you know, we make the playoffs and beat the Dallas Mavericks. Mm-hmm. First time that had ever been done where an eight-seed uh, team beat a number one. Uh, so every spot was special, really. Was you- that a little extra something because it happened to not only be a number one seed, but it happened to be Dallas, a team you had coached for? I'd say it was pretty special because uh, the owner of that team and I didn't get along that well. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that's what made it special for me. Mark Cuban, you know, was uh, was a difficult guy to work for, and uh, we ended up parting ways and not friendly. When you look back at your tenure here, your first tenure here with Golden State, after I had left, that's when... Chris Weber came in, and Sprewell was here, and you guys won the the 50 games and then lost to Phoenix, I believe it was, in the first round of the playoffs. When you look back on that, and I know you have regrets about trading Mitch for Billy Owens, but do you have any regrets about the way you handled the Chris Weber situation? Could that have been done differently to where you guys could have worked together and the team could have apparently taken off like it looked like they were going to? I don't think I could have done uh, any different. I think what should have been done then was to let the coach go, which was me, yeah. and uh, keep Chris Weber. And I begged for that to happen uh, with ownership. Uh, but they were in the midst of selling the team as well, and so there were other complications. And uh, new ownership wanted to make sure I was the coach. And uh, But uh, I begged if they would, because I had another job, pretty darn good job, uh, available to me. I could have mm-hmm. gone to the San Antonio Spurs at the time where my old assistant coach was the general manager and had just fired his coach and uh, called me up and said, geez, if there's any way you can, if you can come down here, I'd love to have you coach my team. And, uh, you know, that would have been a pretty good career yeah. move there as well. Mm-hmm. 
and things weren't doing well here with Chris and I, and they weren't going to get any better. He was just a very difficult guy to coach when he was young. I mean, he was, you know, he was just a negative leader as far as I was concerned when he was young. You know, he's He matured and did very well late in his career. When he got 30 years old, he finally figured it out, I think, and really became a, a really all-around good player and, and pretty good guy, too, by the way, because I picked him up uh, right at the end of his career. Mm-hmm. And he was a different guy then. But I wasn't the only guy that had trouble coaching Chris Weber early. Yeah. I mean, every coach that coached him had a difficult time with him. All right, coming up more with the former head coach of the Golden State Warriors, Milwaukee Bucks, New York Knicks, Dallas Mavericks, Golden State Warriors again. All-time winningest coach in the NBA, Don Nelson. Coming up more with Nelly up until 7 right here on the Sports Leader. Now, back to Mr. T on KNBR, the Sports Leader. Eric Burns, Tom Tolbert, back with Don Nelson. Take us through just real quick. I want to spend some more time on uh, the Warriors and the, the playing career and get your assessment of some of the players that are playing today. But talk about your experience in New York and what drew you to the Knicks and why ultimately that didn't work out for you. Well, I... Uh... I didn't have a job, and I uh, was looking around. Seems to always come down to that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they called, and I uh, interviewed, actually, with uh, uh, Ernie Grunfeld mm-hmm. in Milwaukee, and Ernie used to play for me, uh, so he knew I was a good coach. And, uh, and then I was actually in Europe at the time, and I had to fly back for the press conference. Uh, why it didn't work? I think uh, the general manager there, for uh, or the president of the company there, for whatever reason, was an anti-Celtic guy, and he never really bought into having a me or a Celtic uh, coach. This is what I've heard after mm-hmm. the fact, so I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, but the but the main problem was uh, I was having I had an aging center in Ewing, who uh, you know didn't adapt to the way that I thought he could have adapted and been more of a team guy at the time. And really all he was interested in doing is getting a double-double, you know, 20, 20 and 10, mm-hmm. and he was a happy guy. Uh, and so I had a conflict there when I asked him to uh, play outside a little bit more because he actually was a very good outside shooter. Yeah. And he could have really done well in our UCLA sets, you know, played a little high post, a little low post. And then I had Anthony Mason, who was a very good passing inside player, there wasn't room for both of those guys to play down on the low block. And uh, when I asked Ewing if he'd play high for me, he said, no, I want to play down low, and I want both blocks. I don't want one block. I want them both. So, you know, in other words, find another place for Mason. (laughs) And he was a pretty good player. Uh, And then, uh, you know, when uh, things started to go haywire there, um, there were a couple other guys, Johnny Starks, who, uh, didn't, wasn't buying in because actually I was asking him if he'd come off the bench for me and be my sixth man, which mm-hmm. as soon as I got fired, that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were a veteran team and kind of an aging team. Uh, and uh, I thought they had another shot at the title. So that's why I wanted to go there. But I thought some changes need to be made, and uh, I was the only guy that thought so. Yeah, 50 years in the NBA, how have you seen – the game evolve what's the big difference now than when you first well the media is way different it's it's much harder than it used to be it's not as much fun because all the blogs and everybody's always on your ass you know what i mean and uh 
there's always so much negativity out there, and there's so much pressure to win every single game, uh, every quarter, every basket. Now, you know, you things go wrong, two possessions. That's why I love Phil Jackson. You know, you let the guys play through situations mm-hmm. and learn. Uh, now it's a timeout and readjust and slow the ball up even more. And uh, uh, it's just totally different than it was, you know, when I played or uh, when I started coaching. And there's only a few of us left, really, that uh, really buy into a fast-paced game. I think most everybody now is slowing the ball up uh, and have more control as a coach because you do have you can have a lot of control as a coach if that's what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, you can control the game all you want, you know, and that's kind of where it's headed right now. Uh, I don't particularly like to coach that style, but, uh, you know, a lot of guys do. So that's kind of where – but the game's the same. I mean, you know, it's – pretty simple game really when you think about it and uh, it's changed a little bit because of the rules and uh, you know the charge now the flops and stuff like that I think that's changed our game more than anything but other than that the players are as good or better the equipment is better the trading facilities are all wonderful everybody's mm-hmm. got practice sites and weightlifting coaches and you know i mean there's a thousand coaches on every staff yeah. like, you know anytime you got a little sudden nick why there's three guys on you you know? <laughs> you know i have my theory on the evolution of coaching over the last 20 25 years and i, I was telling burns this yesterday coach that when i played for you we would get in the gym, we'd run through some certain certain things, and then we'd scrimmage for the last half hour of, of the practice. And during the season, we didn't have as many practices, but we'd try to get some scrimmages in and get out there and run. And what Coach would do is he'd give each point guard two sets, and you go ahead and run the ball, try to score early offense, and if you can't get anything, then go ahead and run your set. And the point guard, it's his responsibility to figure out what they want to call. So I go to Orlando, and Matty Gukas was coaching, and we didn't scrimmage once. All year. It was controlled scrimmage. Start at one end, get a rebound, go to the other end, stop. Then get a rebound, go to the other end, stop. And my theory is, is over the course of the last 20 years, that coaches are making more money now than they ever have. And they want to justify why they're making that money. So they interject themselves into the game more than coaches did a couple decades ago, where they would trust their players to go out there and play basketball. I think coaches nowadays have to point guards look over to the sideline what are we running get a rebound look to the sideline what are we running and i really feel that in all sports coaches make so much money they need to justify why they're making that money so they want more control of the game well that big money's over now it's going down so uh you you would think that people then would go back to the old way but they probably not (laughs) no because it's an ego thing i think more than anything control we're control freaks as human beings and you know if you can control something a lot of people like to do that I'm just the opposite. Uh, actually, the hardest is, the hardest thing to teach as a coach is to teach guys how to play and uh, to run the passing game, for example, like yeah. Doug Moe ran, and he was, you know, another uh, high-scoring uh, coach. His teams were unbelievable good at the passing game. And so I said, well, I want to do that. And uh, it was the hardest thing in the world to teach the passing game because there's so many options. Players have to make decisions on their own, and, Sometimes there isn't a right or wrong, but there's a better way or a worse way. Uh, so, you know, it's easy to coach sets. I mean, yeah. you do this, you should go there, you pop it, you do that. Uh, but to really teach basketball and how to play, and so guys will learn the game of basketball is the hardest thing. Who were the guys that you mimicked your coaching style after? 
Uh, I never tried to mimic and uh, when when guys uh, are my assistants and they go on and I say the worst thing you can do is try to be me. You got to be yourself. You got to have your own philosophy and uh, you do it the way you feel is right. Don't try to be somebody else. And I never did that either. I just uh, did it the way I thought it should be done. And uh, I did, did some of the things the Celtics did, you know, because they were world champs and they liked the running game and the fast-paced game. And so I guess I copied that, but not as a coach. I tried to be my own guy. Just uh, going back to the era in which I played, and I may miss somebody here. If I do, go ahead and throw him in there. But Patrick Ewing, Akeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Dwight Howard now, Yao Ming when he was healthy. There may be a center or two that uh, that I'm missing that was a dominant center. But out of those centers, who would you have liked to have coached? I know you did coach Ewing toward the end of his career, but who would you have liked to have coached, and who do you think with the the philosophies that you had would have fit best in your system? Tim Duncan, the guy you didn't Tim mention. Tim Duncan. Well, I, I, guess I, I guess I consider him a power forward, but I guess he's a... Uh, I guess he's a post player, so I could have thrown him yeah, in there. Yeah, he, you know, I think he's uh, way better. People think, and, and he's unbelievable. He's unbelievable uh, as a basketball player because he, you know, he know he knows how to play, and a lot of those guys didn't. And a lot of the really big centers, uh, like uh, Sampson, who's going in the Hall mm-hmm, of Fame yeah. with me, uh, they were so big that they never learned how to play. They learned, you know, their their moves and how to be dominant in their own way, but they never learned the game of basketball. And that's one thing that the Europeans do better than we do. They teach their big guys how to play. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they do it or why they do it, but those big guys know how to play. They know how to move and pass and cut, and uh, they know angles. And, and a lot of our big guys, because the coaches at a young age have a big guy, they put him down a low block, they teach him a hook or you know a post move, and they don't let him do anything else. And uh, as, a, as a result, they come into our league and they're not as good as they should be. Yeah, I was thinking I would have loved to have seen you be able to coach Akeem Olajuwon. He was one of my favorite players. I hated playing against him. He was no fun to play against, but God dang, that guy was he was so good, and I don't know if I've seen a a greater athlete as big as he was in the NBA. Was There's been some great ones, but he was, whew, he was now, There's a guy that was a soccer player yeah. before mm-hmm. a basketball player, mm-hmm. and so he always had the, the, the feet and the legs uh, to carry him, and then once he learned a little bit about basketball, why well, he was such a great athlete. No, he was unbelievable. All right, coming up more with Don Nelson. We'll be in there. We'll be here for another half an hour. Coach Nelson, Eric Burns, and myself right here on the Sports Leader. The Mr. T Show continues on KNBR, the Sports Leader. Eric Burns, Tom Tolbert. Back with my former head coach, Don Nelson, is going to be heading into the Basketball Hall of Fame on the 7th. Talk a little bit about we're talking, uh, me, you, and Eric off the air, and, and how the game needs to change to make it a better game, and including flopping. Oh, uh, well, you know, those of us who hate the college flop, I mean, our league is becoming the same. Where uh, you know it's such a big part of our game now, and it's a call the the uh, officials love to make. Uh, and unless we eliminate that, you know, we're going to end up with a game very similar to the college game, which you know I would prefer not to watch. Uh, so some rule changes that that I think need to be made. Not that anybody's listening in the league to me, but that we need to move the charge line out another foot. I've been saying that for over ten years yeah. now. 
hmm. when actually people listened to me, I was saying it. Uh, and then we cannot allow people to flop and fall down when somebody moves or outside of the paint. I mean, if you're in the paint and you're established, it's hard not to call that if you're within the, the restriction line, that line. But outside the paint, you know, somebody makes a move and you're in a position, you fall down, just don't call it. Referees, just don't call that. And guess what? They'd stop doing it. Yeah. When did the flopping really take off? I mean, it seems like recently there's been a lot more episodes. Well, we always had floppers, but but very few. Like Doug Collins was a notorious uh, flopper and a few other guys. But when the Europeans came over, uh, and now I think we have over 100 in the league, don't yeah. we? There's a lot of them, 80 to 100 Europeans. That's the way they played over there, and, they, and all of a sudden it became a big part of our game and a very effective uh, part. Uh, in, you know, anywhere that anybody that played uh, foreign basketball, I mean, South America, the same thing, like who's better than Gin- Ginobili at floppy? I mean, yeah. there's another guy you if you want to teach flopping, watch that guy. I mean, that guy's <laughs> the best. Uh, so, you know, to get those guys to play straight up the way they're supposed to, good defense as opposed to flop defense, you got to stop calling that stuff if you're a referee. And the, the head of the referees has to tell his guys, we're not calling that, or, or a rule has to be put in that you don't call flops outside of the paint. You know, one thing I don't particularly care for, and there's – I think you called me a dumbass last time I brought this up, and probably rightfully so, because they're not going to extend the court. They're not going to widen the court. But I just think the three-point shot is is not what it was intended to be. It was supposed to be a risk-reward shot, and now guys are coming off screens and firing up threes, and the percentages don't even out. If you shoot 33% from three, it's equivalent to shooting 50% from two, which is a good percentage. 50% is good. Yeah, guys shooting 40, 44% from three, which equates like 60% from two, which seems like the balance is way out of whack, but I'm not sure there's, there's anything you can do about it. But I just think the game was better when the three point shot was part of the game, but didn't take over the game where you get teams shooting 25, 33s per game. Well, you get half more for a three than yeah. you do a two. You get 50% more if you make a three. That's a lot. Maybe that's too much. I don't know what it should be. Uh, I actually like the three-point shot because I think it does open up the game and forces defenses to come out and, and guard the, the three, which I think is good for our game. Uh, so I, I don't really mind all that. But, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the flop needs to be corrected right How about now. a regular field goal three points, a three-pointer four points? Okay, I'll vote for that. <laughs> Although that makes no sense whatsoever. (laughs) I don't think they're going to list the either guy at the league office. (laughs) No, they'd probably probably, uh, give me a blood alcohol test if I brought that up to them. I'm sure that's that's exactly what they would do. Hey, where is is LeBron James in your mind right now in his career? And is this guy going to end? I think this guy may end up being... He's going to end up being one of the handful of best best players of all time for sure. I always say Michael Jordan because that's where I grew up and I played against Michael Jordan and that was kind of right in my right in my wheelhouse and they're much different players but I think of, I, I think LeBron has a chance he's going to end up being one of the top two three players of all time by the time this thing's over I agree I think he's the best now and has been the best for a few years uh, Kobe's wonderful and great and all the rest of it but LeBron is the best and has been and will be for 
as long as till he gets old. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy is incredible because he has the ability to make plays and he knows the game, and then he has this unbelievable body. The only negative about him is occasionally he's not aggressive enough yeah. uh, for himself. I mean, he makes the correct play almost all the time, no matter when it is in the game. Now, there's sometimes in the fourth quarter that you need your best player not to pass and to go ahead and attack, you know, the, the second uh, defender and so on. Uh, so he takes some criticism, you know, uh, in big games where maybe he doesn't have, you know, the Kobe Bryant numbers or whatever. But he could get those numbers if he was more selfish. I, I love the guy. I think he's a wonderful player. I don't condone what he did to Cleveland. And, yeah. you know, that, that hurt me about him. But he, and I don't really know him personally, but uh, he is a wonderful basketball player, I'll tell you that. And he seems like a pretty nice fellow to me, too. Who are the greatest players that you played against? Well, Oscar Robertson was the best that I'd ever seen. I played against him in college and in the pros, uh, you know, as long as uh, bo- both of us played, which was a long, long time. That guy averaged a triple-double, <laughs> uh, averaged for a season. Got what every game. Uh, and so now, when you know, went into your career. He was like Magic's, LeBron 45 yeah. years ago, right? Yeah. Magic, you know, he's got 138 yeah. or something. Yeah. Here's a guy that got had 82 <laughs> in an 82-game season. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, he was an unbelievable uh, player. But, uh, you know, guys like Russell and Chamberlain and Kareem and uh, there were just so many great, great players. Uh, they, you know, you, you don't find those guys around. The size and ability that those guys had to dominate basketball games, um, you just can't find them. Give me your all-time starting five. I, I would leave somebody out. I'm just not good at all that all-time stuff or all my all-dunce team, although you would make that. Thank you. Uh, First team? starting center (laughs) uh you know i don't know you give me yours i don't Um, really know i would go i mean start with jordan at two i would have lebron at three i'd probably have magic at one um Fours always fours are tough for me but i would go with duncan i think duncan would be my starting uh starting power forward and then I think if I had seen him play, I would put Wilt Chamberlain at five. It's hard for me to put him at five because I never really, I never saw him play. But I, I think he would be there. I mean, I couldn't go wrong. There's so many good centers I could put in the in the five spot. But I think that would probably be it. I mean, I always love Kevin McHale. He, I think he's the most. He may be the greatest low post scorer that I've ever seen. He had so many different moves and would never pass the ball. He right. would, I hated that, too. I was right. like, I guarded you pretty good. Could you just pass it out to somebody else? No, I got another move for you. I'm going <laughs> to give it to you, too. But, I mean, that would probably be it. Magic, Jordan, LeBron, Duncan, and probably Wilt. What was Wilt yeah. like? Uh, he was a really nice fella. Uh, you know, I had a chance to have- be with him a few times off the basketball court. He was just a pleasure to be around, talk to. And he knew a lot. He had a racehorse that made more money than he did one time when he was <laughs> when he was a player. Uh, you know, so he was doing those kind of things early in his life, and he had just had a wonderful life. And we've all read about how many you know women he had and all that guys. I don't believe that, but neither do uh, I. <laughs> but good yes. luck to him. <laughs> uh, but I think you would replace him uh, probably with Kareem. Yeah, Would had, you? had you seen them both play? Yeah, yeah. Kareem was. Uh, I saw Kareem tour. I didn't see him in the Bucks yeah. era. 
Yeah. Which he, did he win like three MVPs with the Bucks or something like that? Yeah, he was. Well, he was only there like one year. I think. Is that what it was? One? I, well, well, I don't I know. A short period of more. time, whatever it was. Uh, but you know when they uh, when Kareem first came out, they actually played a game, uh, uh, a game for the Murray Stokes. We used to have the Stokes games mm-hmm. up in the Catskills all the time, and uh, they actually played their first game each other at the Murray Stokes game. Really, Kareem and Wilt, and I w- I played at that game, so I was in there, and it was like an unbelievable <laughs> experience to watch those two guys. <laughs> they were so dominant, so good, but. Uh, and I think Wilt probably, you know, won the battle of points or whatever. But uh, you could just tell Kareem was going to be the guy. I mean, he just had so much. Wilt was pretty much a stationary kind of guy. The, you know, the game started when he got down the other end of the court. Yeah. Uh, but his rebound numbers, you know, between he and Russell, those guys would get 20, 24, 25 30. rebounds. Yeah. They'd get 50 rebounds on occasion. You know, I mean, those guys were incredible. Now, nobody's rebounds the ball like those guys did, and I don't think ever will. That, that's what separates those two from everybody, including Kareem. All right, coming up, one last segment with Don Nelson. We'll ask him what it means to him to be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in about 10 days right here on the Sports Leader. You're listening to KNBR, the only place with Golden State Warriors basketball. Now back to Mr. T. You dumb bastard. One of our favorites. Don Nelson joins us for the next uh, five or six minutes here. Coach, what does it mean to you the, to be selected to enter the Basketball Hall of Fame? Well, Tommy, it's really funny. I have this terrible guilt complex uh, that I don't deserve to be there and that there's so many other uh, great coaches that deserve it before I do. Like, how about Al Adels? You know, I mean, yeah. how can I beat that guy in the Hall of Fame? And then think about uh, Dick Mata and... Uh, um, I forgot. I forgot his name. He used to coach the Rockets and uh, uh, the. Uh, How long ago did he coach the Rockets? Uh, well, quite a. Uh, Not Rudy T. Bill Fitch. Bill Fitch. Yes, Bill. I mean that guy. I mean those guys were unbelievable coaches. They all won titles, and here I'm getting in, and I, and I hadn't won a title, and uh, well, they haven't won more games. Uh, well, I hope that's not the only reason I got in, but uh, you know. Those guys should be in there, and uh, I mean, I'm very proud to be in. Don't get me wrong; yeah. I feel very blessed that I'm in, and it's and I'm glad I got in before I died. That's a yeah. good thing too. <laughs> Although I got to give a speech, otherwise Donnie could have given it. Uh, you know, but I have that complex, uh, and maybe I shouldn't have. But uh, I am blessed. My whole career has been blessed. Uh, can you imagine doing something that you like to do more than anything in the world and get to do it for 50 years of your yeah. life? I mean, think about that. Being in basketball uh, for 50 years, and then uh, at the end of your career, you go to retire, they put you in the Hall of Fame. I mean, what could be better than that? You know, what a lucky guy. Yeah. I guess the only thing that would be better is you can buy half a Maui on the way there. Well, I already Or what have. you did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look back with any regrets having not won an NBA championship? Does that not you at all? Are you okay with that? Well, there's a lot of co- good coaches that have never won titles, yeah. uh, and and uh, it goes the other way too. You know, if you have the talent, uh, you know, those teams win. I mean, the bad boys, and yeah, there's a lot of teams that uh, that just were able to win games because of the talent level. And uh, I don't know that that has that much to do with it, just because you won a title or you won mm-hmm. one in 15 years or 20 years of coaching. You know, 
does that make you better than the other guy? Uh, that that can certainly be debatable. Um, but I will say that I never coached the best team uh, mm-hmm. that that played in the playoffs, and uh, we beat a lot of teams that were better than us. Uh, that means something to me. Yeah. What means more to me than anything was I really believe that I got out of most every team I coached, I got the maximum wins that that team could give or more. I, I really believe I did that. I that my teams played up to their potential or over their potential, and never under their potential. And uh, I would hope that's the reason I'm in the Hall of Fame. If you could separate the two, are you more proud of your coaching career or playing career? I'm more proud of graduating from the University of Iowa at age 72. That's right. Congratulations. I yeah, I thought that was... That I was have a... 26 more years to go. <laughs> <laughs> That was a goal I had, and I and I was accomplished that this year. Were you running Dangerfield? Did you go back triple lending and stay in the dorms and all that kind of stuff? No, I didn't stay in the dorms. <laughs> Nelly's in the dorms. I did Take go. Her. Back. I did go back and get my degree. And that was just so much fun, and uh, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that all my kids are going to the Hall of Fame. They all mm-hmm. went to my graduation. That's all great. My kids, a lot of my grandkids will be there, and there'll be thirty close friends there, and. Uh, so it should be a really fun time, and uh, yeah. I'm glad it's going to be over, too, because I'm not good at giving speeches. They give you four minutes. That's two minutes too long for Well, me. you've already wrote it, right? Yeah, not. Yeah. not. <laughs> Nelly said he's going to wing it. Good luck with that. I'd get the cue cards just in case. Yeah, okay. <laughs> get up there and lose your train of thought. Be like, well, wait a minute. Where are we going from here? Just real quick, we're right up against it, but... What was that decision going back to college? Did you just say it was time, something you'd always wanted to do and thought no time like the present? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I finally had time because, you know, coaching's a 12 month a year job now. And I w- was never able to go back and do what I needed to do to get my degree. And when I finally retired, I had two years. I said, Hey, it's time. Let me go do that and have some fun doing it. And I did. Coach, congratulations, really. Thanks. It was a uh, it was an honor and a pleasure playing for you. People ask me who I enjoyed playing for the most in my career, and I always say you and Lute were my two favorite coaches. Not only were you guys fun to play for, but we were always prepared going into games and always felt like we had a good chance to win. So I know I frustrated you a little bit throughout those three years, but uh, very little. Certainly, certainly had a great time there at three years with the Run TMC crew. So congratulations, tell the family. That I said hi, and believe me, you have nothing, nothing to feel guilty about because you belong in that Hall of Fame. Well, thank you very much. Great to be with you. And, Bernsey, we didn't let you talk very much. It's just an honor <laughs> to be able to sit in here and listen to you guys go at it. Thank right, you, Coach. Coach. Congratulations, Coach. I appreciate it. Well deserved. All right, we are done. You'll like this ending, Coach. Uh, for whatever reason, when I started doing the show, I was like, well, how are we, gonna, how are we going to end this show where it, just, it can just be clean and we can get out of here, and this is how we do it. Take it away, Dirk. Oh, my God! Shut it down! Let's go home! You dumb bastard.